Um, good evening. We'll be reading chapter 2 from John. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out and take some to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was one of or the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple court, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those that sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Thanks, uh, Meg, for reading for us uh, tonight, and we're going to be uh, working our way through that uh, part of John's Gospel and uh, seeing what it has to say to us. So if you do have a Bible there, it would definitely be helpful to have it open. Uh, last year on Christmas Day, a disaster struck at our house. Uh, our air conditioner gave up the ghost and stopped working. And being Christmas Day, we knew there was basically zero chance of getting an electrician out in the next month or so, and we're going to be in for a very hot and sweaty couple of weeks. But there was a silver lining. Uh, With the old air conditioner gone, it meant there was a chance for a new air conditioner. And uh, thanks to the work of uh, Joel and Hayden, uh, we have now an awesome new air conditioner in our living room. Uh, Technically, it's not more powerful than the old one, but it is just so much better. It uh, just seems to run effortlessly. The old one, you had to keep turning up the fan to high and turning the the, uh, temperatures down to 18. And uh, you just hear it there. It was, uh, you know, working away and blowing out. Uh, This one, I actually keep turning, forget 
forgetting to turn it off at night because it just sits there in the background and it's just so uh, nice you forget that it's even running. And uh, as we think about the replacement of something much better, uh, replacing something old, uh, that is really the big theme of John chapter 2. Something new uh, replacing something old. In John chapter 2, we see how Jesus has come to replace uh, something old, some old things. He's come to replace Old Testament traditions and institutions with something even better. We're going to see in John chapter 2 how he replaces the Old Testament or rather the, uh, the tradition, uh, the traditional purification rites of the Jewish people of his time. And then we're going to see how he replaces something even more significant than the uh, purification traditions. He replaces the whole Old Testament temple as a way to meet God and enter into his presence. And as we see Jesus being so much better than what came before, this is really amazing news for us because it means that actually we can have the blessing that he brings when we believe in him. So let's start by looking at this first sign that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. It's the sign of the best wine. And John, I think, really wants us to understand that this miracle of turning water into wine, it isn't kind of just a neat party trick. Uh, It's not just a kind of act of kindness to save a bride and groom, the, the, the embarrassment of running out of wine at their, on their wedding day and you know being remembered forever after, having sermon illustrations about how I went to a wedding once and they, they ran out of wine. Uh, no, but it's not just that. Uh, this event, that this act that Jesus does, it has a deep theological and spiritual significance. Look down at verse 11. John sums up what he's doing here in this act, or what Jesus is doing in the act. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is a key moment in Jesus' ministry, the first of the signs that he is going to do, the first moment when we start to see his glory, the first moment, as Jesus promised last week, where we see heaven opened up and we start to see his glory, the glory of God, uh, starting to shine down onto earth through him. It's kind of a strange thing to say, though, that his glory is revealed through turning water into wine. It just sounds like such a party trick, doesn't it? I mean, how popular is Jesus going to be when the news gets out that he can come to your party and give you 150 litres of the finest wine? It doesn't seem very serious, does it? It sounds uh, like something that, uh, yeah, is just a a bit of fun. But as we're going to see, it's always the case in John's Gospel. If If we dig a bit deeper, there are many more layers to this sign. There are many levels of significance to what Jesus does here. And the first significant thing to note about this sign is that it involves a banquet and it involves fine wine. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that uh, on the third day, there's a wedding uh, taking place in Cana in Galilee. And the whole point of Jesus' miracle here is to ensure that this wedding that takes place overflows with the best wine. Because after uh, Jesus has turned the water into wine, 
in verse 9, we see that what Jesus has produced uh, is, uh, is great. Verse 9, the master of the banquet tastes the water that had been turned into wine. Verse 10, he calls the bridegroom inside and says, everyone, out of cho- uh, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. I know exactly what kind of wine Jesus produced. Was it a, a $500 bottle of uh, Penfold Bin 169 Cabernet Sauvignon 2009? I think you can maybe get that at Dan Murphy's on the way home if you'd like to. Uh, or maybe it was a $40,000 uh, Penfold's Grange Hermitage 1951. I don't think you can get them at Dan Murphy's on the way home. But whatever Jesus produced, it's not just a a casket, is it? It, This is the best wine that this this banquet master person has ever tasted. And these themes of wonderful wine and banquets and weddings, they're significant in Old Testament prophecies about God's future kingdom about God's plan to bring salvation to his people. I just want you to have a listen and or you can read along to what the prophet Isaiah says about God's new kingdom. Uh, He says in uh, Isaiah chapter 25 verse 6, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth, from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. You can see what's being described here is God's salvation. And it's described in terms of a wonderful banquet. A Michelin five-star banquet with the finest of food and and the best wine. But it's more than just an ordinary banquet, isn't it? You can see that this is a metaphor because at this banquet, death is swallowed up. Tears are wiped away. The disgrace of exile and judgment, which is where God's people were, as I was always writing, that, that disgrace is removed from God's people. And they're again uh, welcomed into his family. Now, Isaiah doesn't explicitly mention a, a wedding in banquet in, in these verses or uh, in his, his prophecy, but the prophet Jeremiah uh, pictures the coming of God's salvation. Uh, he writes, in another place he writes, uh, it's a time when the sounds of joy and gladness are the voices of the bride and bridegroom and the voices of those who bring thank offerings will fill Judah and Israel. Well, these kind of prophecies in the background with hopes of a banquet, hopes of a, a time of the bride and groom, uh, the voices of bride and groom filling Israel uh, in the background. To come to a wedding and to turn water into the finest of wine, to bring joy and gladness to a wedding. These are signs, aren't they? These are signs. This is a sign that the promised salvation is arriving. God's new kingdom banquet is beginning, that the new stage of God's plans is uh, starting to take place. The new stage of God's plans where death will be defeated, where tears will be wiped away, where the disgrace of sin and judgment will be removed. So the uh, 
the beginning of the banquet, that, that's the first way that I think this sign reveals God's glory. The second way it reveals His glory is by showing that He is bringing a new way to be purified. And he show, Jesus shows this by using some special uh, stone jars that were set aside for ceremonial uh, washing. If you look in uh, verse 6, uh, nearby stood six water jars, the kind used for, by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. In the Old Testament, you could be uh, ceremonially unclean by coming into contact with all kinds of things, uh, dead bodies, unclean animals, bodily fluids, uh, other people who are unclean. And when you're unclean, you couldn't approach God. It was kind of a, a symbol of the fact that people are sinful and, uh, and, and there's a, a distance between the, the perfect and holy God and us sinful human, pe- uh, human beings. And so the Jewish people had developed this tradition or this uh, practice that they would have these water jars in the house so that when you came in, uh, you could wash yourself off and you could then be uh, ceremonially pure as you came into the house. But Jesus replaces the water with fine new wine to show that there is no longer any need for ceremonially, ceremonial washings. He replaces this water with wine to show that he has come to bring a new and complete purification for sins that is as superior to, uh, uh, to the old way as wa- fine wine is to water. John the Baptist, we saw last week, he said that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is uh, again showing that same truth that he has come to purify the world of sins. He has come to replace the old system of purification with his new, uh, a new way of purifying the world. And ultimately, this sign of new wine, it's preparing us for the moment when Jesus will bring purification by giving himself as a sacrifice on the cross. Now, actually, there are a number of clues in this sign that Jesus does that actually hint at the, uh, the fulfillment of uh, Jesus' purification mission at his death on the cross. The first uh, thing is his interaction with his mother. Uh, when Jesus' mother first asks for help with the, the wine disaster that's unfolding for this wedding, he seems to respond almost rudely, doesn't it? Uh, People often notice that when they read this miracle. Uh, Jesus, verse 4, Jesus replies, Woman, uh, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I don't think I've ever called my mother woman, and uh, I don't think that she would appreciate that very much. Uh, I don't think uh, a boy has ever called Simone woman either. Uh, But from what I've read in commentaries, it probably does come across more harshly in English than it was originally in the Greek translation. 
And uh, I think we're going to see a little sign of that in, in a minute. But perhaps a better translation, or uh, not a better, it does literally say woman, but maybe one that gives the kind of weight that we might have is actually uh, mother. Uh, you know, it, you might say mother to your mother when you have something to raise with her. You're not being disrespectful or uh, rude, but you do want to raise something with her. Um, you're maybe not all that happy with something that has happened. And I think Jesus is in that kind of mood. His mother has approached him, but he is, uh, he's a bit taken aback because, as he says, his hour has not yet come. And uh, his mother seems to be jumping the gun a bit at this point. Now, we don't know in John chapter 2 what Jesus' hour is. What is this hour that he is referring to? Well, as you read through the Gospel of John, you find a few references to the fact that the hour has not yet come. But then when you get towards the end of the book, and particularly when you get to John chapter 17, and Jesus is praying his very last prayer for his disciples, this is what Jesus prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. And this miracle in Cana that begins to reveal Jesus' glory, well, it's pointing us ultimately towards the moment that will fully reveal his glory, which is the moment that he dies on the cross. And what's interesting is that actually the next time we meet Jesus' mother is in, uh, in, in John's Gospel, the next time we meet her, is standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus is crucified. And there's another little interaction there between Jesus and his mother. Uh, John chapter 19 and verse 26. When Jesus sees his mother there, he's up on the cross and he looks down, he sees her, uh, and he, the disciple whom he loves standing nearby, he says to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I think Jesus' reference to his mother there as woman is clearly not uh, being rude and suggests the kind of tone that can be used there. Um, but uh, it, it just echoes, doesn't it, his conversation back at the first sign. So the first sign, uh, John cleverly weaves clues into that, that first sign. Jesus' mother kind of provokes the first sign of Jesus' glorious purifying mission, even though his hour has not yet come. But then she's there again when his hour does come and he completes his glorious purifying mission through his sacrifice on the cross. The final little clue I think that we see that Jesus' real mission of purification takes place on the cross is just the turning of the water into wine. John doesn't make the link between wine and Jesus' blood explicitly in his gospel, but certainly there is that sense of the, the red wine uh, being a little bit of a sign of the red blood that Jesus is going to share, shed, and the other gospels make that link uh, crystal clear. As Jesus shares the Last Supper with his disciples in Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, he makes that wine explicitly a symbol of his shed blood. And it continues to be a sign for us as Christians. 
And uh, we're going to see that sign again tonight because we're going to share the Lord's Supper together and remember how the wine is a sign of his shed blood. Turning water into wine, of course, itself, it doesn't purify anybody, but it's a sign of what Jesus will accomplish through his sacrificial death. I want to ask you tonight, have you received the purification that Jesus offers? Uh, Perhaps in our culture we don't think of purification necessarily in those kind of religious terms with religious purification rituals like the people of Jesus' time. But I think we still have ideas about purity. Uh, We still have uh, some kinds of of traditions in our, our community. Uh, some people look to purify their bodies with uh, diets or cleanses or um, uh, exercise and, and that kind of thing and, and, and look to make themselves sort of pure in that way. Some people have uh, things that they do to look for sexual purity, uh, purity rings and purity covenants and, and that kind of thing. Uh, some people have looked to purify their thinking by getting rid of old-fashioned or out-of-date ideas and uh, trying to, you know, just uh, uh, think in the, in the right way about people and about those around them and about politics and that kind of thing. Now, all of these sort of purifying things have good aims. We want to be pure in our bodies. We want to be pure in our thoughts. We want to be pure in the way we speak. Uh, God calls us to do that. I think if we don't start with Jesus, then a passion for purity can be quite harsh, can be quite uh, legalistic, and it can lead to despair if we fail, if we don't reach our goal of purity. Or if we do think that we're doing pretty well in terms of purifying ourselves, well, it can lead to self-righteousness and pride, and we just look down on other people and think that they're not really doing as well as they should be. It's only when we start with the forgiveness and cleansing that Jesus brings. It's only when we're secure that actually we have a deep internal purification through His blood, through faith in Him. That, I think, is what gives us a foundation to pursue pursue a pure life with grace and with humility and with joy because we know that we're not starting with what we've done, We're starting with what Jesus has done for us. So this first sign shows that Jesus brings a better purity, a cleansing on the inside. Uh, It welcomes us, the cleansing that he brings welcomes us to a joyful banquet and uh, it welcomes us in however much we might have struggled to be pure before. The second half of the chapter... Uh, John goes on to show us how Jesus replaces something much more significant, actually, in some ways, than the traditional ceremonial washings of the Jewish people. Jesus shows that actually he came to replace the whole temple and sacrificial system. Now, after this sign of the, the, the wine, uh, the turning the water into wine, it seems we have a bit of a break in the, the, uh, the timeline here and we jump to the time of the Passover. We don't know exactly which Passover it is, but I think John wants us to be thinking about Jesus' actions at the Passover in Jerusalem at this moment in his gospel. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, uh, he sees the temple courts full of animals ready to be sold for sacrifices and he goes in and he makes a, cord of, a whip of cords 
God and he drives out the animals and he overturns the tables where people are uh, changing money and he uh, gets rid of the doves and tells people to get out of here and he says, stop turning my father's house into a market. Uh, And uh, he's angry that the temple has become more of a marketplace than a worship place, that it's become just about making money rather than about finding mercy and forgiveness for sins, which was what it was there for. But Jesus also, I think, drives out the sacrificial animals that are there in the temple because he's pointing to the truth that he himself is now going to be the only sacrifice required. He's there at the Passover time and he is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And not only is Jesus the new Lamb who will take the place of all these other animals that are there in the courts of the temple, but Jesus is, uh, comes to replace the whole temple itself. Uh, Jesus makes this claim when the Jewish leaders uh, they, they question him about uh, what is he doing, uh, disrupting things in the temple courts. And verse 18, um, it, we, the Jews uh, respond to him, what sign can you do uh, to show us, uh, to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. But they reply, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? The temple building was a, a massive, massive structure. Uh, one thing I read described it as uh, the building project of the century in the Roman Empire. Uh, that is how significant this building was. And so for Jesus to come in and say, you know, I can, I can just rebuild this thing in three days when it's taken 46 years of uh, the whole, you know, the king taxing the whole country to get the funds and, and build it. The Jewish leaders can't even comprehend what he's trying to say there. But clearly he's claiming in some way to have the powers of God because only God could build this massive structure. But Jesus, again, uh, besides the more obvious meaning that he's saying that he is, has the power of God, John points out for us, he's got a deeper meaning here, hasn't he? In verse 21, the temple he spoke about was his body. Jesus isn't just claiming that he can rebuild the temple. Jesus is claiming that he is the temple. He is the place where heaven and earth now meet. He's the place where God comes and dwells on earth. He's the place where you can go into God's presence. And the sign that he proves that he is the temple is his final sign, his greatest sign, his resurrection from the dead on the third day. I don't know uh, if sometimes you feel like you're a lot distant uh, from God and maybe there are some things that you can do to feel closer to God. Um, Some things that I definitely like to do are to uh, come to the Bible and try and have a devotion time and and read the Bible and pray. Uh, That can make me feel closer to God. Uh, Sometimes I like to go out in the middle of creation and just see the things that God has made and uh, I certainly feel that God is closer when I'm uh, out, you know, in the middle of creation than I do maybe when I'm standing in the middle of a shopping centre or something just because uh, I can see his creation uh, right there. 
uh, sometimes I uh, put on some, uh, some Christian music and uh, just let that uh, help me, rem- remind me of uh, all the things that God has done for me. Uh, and I think th- these, these are good things. Uh, they help us to feel God's presence. But we need to remember, they don't actually make God closer to us. Uh, Jesus is the only one who brings God close to us. When we believe in Him, we are brought into God's presence permanently. And God is with us, whether we feel like that or not. So if you do struggle, if you are struggling maybe with wondering uh, exactly where God is, feeling that He might be distant uh, from you, for sure, uh, make use of the means that He's given us to help us feel His presence, but also don't forget to remind yourself that actually, even when you're not feeling His presence close with you, He's still there. He's still there because Jesus has come and Jesus, when you, when you trust in Jesus, He is the temple, He is the place where you are right with God, uh, where, where God has come to you and uh, is with you all the time, every day. On John chapter 2, we've seen both Jesus' first sign, which is turning the water into wine. We've also seen this promise of His final and greatest sign, His resurrection from the dead. And both of these things show us that He has come to bring a greater blessing uh, than the people of Israel experienced under their old covenant. Jesus has come to bring a better purification of sins that doesn't rely on rituals or sacrifices or other things. And Jesus has come to bring a better temple, uh, the temple of his own body, the temple that means that we can meet Jesus uh, at any time, uh, meet God at any time and any place, uh, and that he is with us uh, always. And these uh, are wonderful things that Jesus uh, reveals to us uh, through, uh, through his uh, words and his signs uh, today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, hear uh, John's account of Jesus. I thank you that uh, he does bring wonderful purification for sins uh, through his death on the cross. I thank you that he is uh, the temple that brings you close to us uh, anytime, at any place, uh, in, uh, when all we need to do is put our, our trust in him. And we ask that you would uh, grow our faith as we uh, read these uh, great words from John's gospel, Uh, see Jesus reveal himself to us. We, We pray that we might trust him more deeply and we ask these things in his name. Amen.